0: You would turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the Book of Psalms and Psalm 119. We're reading verse 33. With the Word of God open, let's pray together. Father in heaven come to your presence this evening and pray, O Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things in your law, that you would help us, O God. Send your Spirit, O Lord, to peel away the scales that so often blind us to the light, the truth, the beauty of your Word, and lead us, O God, in the everlasting way. And today, tonight, if we hear your word, O God, let us not harden our hearts as in, as your people did at Mariba, though they saw your work, yet they resisted your spirit and were left wandering in the wilderness for forty years. And you swore in their wrath that they would not enter your rest. Draw near to us this evening, O God, and deliver us from that fate, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Word of God, Psalm 119, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of Your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep Your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of Your commandments, for I delight in it, Incline my heart to Your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in Your ways. Confirm to Your servant Your promise that You may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for Your rules are good Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Well, Psalm 119 is like spiritual fast food, it's like driving through McDonald's or Chick fil A, whatever you're poison is, and picking up quick food from the pickup window. It's, it's the kind of words you can use in prayer to God, and it doesn't require much effort to turn the words of the psalm into prayer because almost every verse of the psalm is, in fact, a prayer itself, words you can take to God to get yourself going in prayer, like a fire starter. So often it can, be, it can be difficult to get a fire started back in Northern Ireland, especially when you're burning coal, and coal gives out a lot of heat, but it's hard to get started. It's rock after all. And so you you normally use not pieces of wood. They don't generally generate enough heat at the, at the, at the start to get things going. You, you, you use little um, chemical blocks that you put in amongst the coals and light those, and then as those chemical blocks start going. They produce enough heat to get the coals going, and then you're off to the races, as it were. And Psalm 119 is like that. It's little snippets of of truth for you to direct Godward as you wrestle with God in prayer. And that's, that's helpful, because prayer, like a fire, can be hard to get going sometimes. We need help, a leg up, to get going in our prayer life. And the fifth section of Psalm 119 has to do with the heart and God, or cultivating a heart for God. David was the man whose heart was after God, God's own heart. And it's the chief business, I think, of the Christian life, the chief struggle of the Christian life, is, is cultivating such a heart. I read once, I tried to find it this afternoon, couldn't find it, but I read once, I thought it was in uh, David McIntyre's little book, The Hidden Life of Prayer, which is marvelous, but, but the, the, the three great struggles of the Christian life are getting the heart to God, giving the heart to God, and keeping the heart with God. And I think there's much truth there. And in essence, that's the driving part, the driving thrust of each verse of this lovely little standard. How do you cultivate a heart for God? Well, it's like almost everything else in the Christian life. It's a battle we either win or lose on our knees. And you can divide these verses, these eight verses, into three sections. From Verse 33 to 35, we'll entitle those verses as a prayer to reach my heart through my mind. The psalmist is crying out to God, reach my heart through my mind. The heart is not just the sentiment of the soul, the feelings, but the heart is attached to the mind. And if we're to get to God, uh, get to our heart, uh, we have to come through the mind in order to do so. And that's the truth you see here in these verses. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Teach me, engage my mind, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Like the rest of us, the psalmist is a strange kind of study of contradictions. He delights in God's path, God's way and he feels the need to be dragged to it. You could almost translate verse 35, drag me to my delight. I need you to lead me like a, like a, like a donkey that's been lassoed. I hear Jim bought a donkey or is buying a donkey for the, for the homestead, another animal, breakout artist, I hear, and it'll be interesting to see. Um, but Um, donkeys can be stubborn, and our hearts are stubborn, and we need to be led, dragged down the pathway of God's commandments, even though it is our delight. That's a strange contradiction. Do you find that in your heart? As Paul says in Romans 7, the good that I, I want to do I don't do, the evil that I will not to do that I find I practice. I mean, how hard can it be obeying God and yet we find ourselves again and again wandering away. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. The the word he uses for delight is the word used elsewhere for the delight of a husband in his new bride. That's the way the psalmist feels about the ways of God. He delights in them. And yet he needs to be taught Teach me that the word in verse thirty-three carries the idea of being pointed in the right, the right direction. He doesn't know which, which way to go. He needs someone to point him in the right direction. It's like being in a new time without Siri. We've become dependent upon Siri, and it took me the longest time to find my way around Greensboro because I, I needed Siri to tell me where to go. And and I was would be on the phone talking to somebody or um, listening to a sermon and wasn't really paying attention. And so, Siri would say, turn left, I would turn left, turn right, I would turn right. And I wasn't really paying attention. I never actually learned. I never put the map out on the table and saw, okay, here's here, here's Battleground Road, and here's Friendly Avenue. How do those roads connect, and so forth, and so on. And, and Wendover, that long, long road that goes on forever and a day, and learning how they all connect together, I had the devil of the job doing that. I was dependent upon Siri. And um, the psalmist says to God, Lord, you're my spiritual GPS. I need you to point me in the right direction. I don't know where to go. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end, to its ultimate destination. It's one thing to make a good start, but, but keeping it to the end, no matter what the consequence, no matter the cost, that's an entirely different thing. You could imagine Jesus praying this prayer, Lord, I've, I've chosen to humble myself, to be obedient to the point of death. But it's one thing saying that in, the, in, the, in Bethlehem, as a little boy growing up, and then as a teenager in Jerusalem, But as, as, as he grew older and the challenges became greater, he needed more and more wisdom to overcome the difficulties of life. The complexities of life so I was sharing with some of you this morning in that wonderful version in Luke's Gospel we spoke about in, in our Covenanter, he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. He was never out of favor with God, but Jesus grew in favor with God it's an amazing statement that's christ 's capacity to unravel complicated situations, complicated people dealing with them, giving them just the right response when to say something, when to say nothing, when to say everything, when to answer a fool according to his folly, when not to answer a fool according to his folly, that requires tremendous wisdom. And as Christ grew, his skill grew with him, like an athlete never knocked a hurdle down, but as his strength grew, his capacity to, to clear higher and higher hurdles and obstacles cleanly and to lift greater and greater spiritual weights um, increased as he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man until that great climactic um, moment when he was obedient to the point of death, and he passed beyond the realm of finite misery to the event horizon where the gravitational forces of, of Destruction in the black hole, reach infinite, physicists say, Well, Christ passed on the cross beyond the, the event horizon of the finite misery and suffering that men could do to him into the infinite space where he was alone with God as the sin of the world and God unleashed the full fury of his hurricanic wrath in the Son's direction. And Jesus needed the strength of the Spirit. He offered Himself without spot through the Spirit, the writer to the Hebrews said. And the Spirit wasn't there to lessen the suffering. He was there to strengthen Christ, to endure the fullness of it, that your debt would be paid to the last farthing. And so you can imagine Jesus, because these are His words before the years, praying, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, Calvary Road, the Via Dolorosa, and and I will keep it to the end, the bitter end, the utter end, as I make an end of all my people's sins. Make an end of all your wrath against them, and bring them home to God. And so when you pray these prayers, these words, you're praying the prayers of your big brother Jesus— Lord, give me faithfulness, not just to make a good beginning, but to make a good end. That's something for you older people. Sometimes you might think, as an older person here, that you've retired, you've moved beyond the workforce, your children are all grown, your grandchildren are scattered, hither, thither, and yon. You think, what else have I got to live for? You've got something to live for here. You can show the rest of us how to make a good end, how to hold on to God in your in your dotage, as, you, as your strength fails you, and your mind maybe fails you, and your God doesn't fail you, and you hold on to Him because He's holding on to you, and it's such an encouragement to us younger folk to see you press on down a road we will soon be on ourselves as you keep God's commandments to the end. Give me understanding. That I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. It takes great wisdom to understand how to apply the Word of God to our, our lives. The difference between what is good and what is better and what is best. As Paul prayed to the Philippians, or for the Philippians, this is my prayer for you all that you may be filled. With the knowledge of his will in all spiritual discernment and understanding. Or knowledge in all discernment, it's something like that. But he's praying for wisdom. It's not simplistic. The principles of God's word are simple, but applying them can be very complicated. Like when to spank a child, uh, and when to let love cover a multitude of sins. Folly is bound up in the heart of your children. Drive it from him with the rod, and you will save his soul for Sheol. Your child's salvation is at stake. And yet, none of us spank our children for every minor infraction— and none of us ought to spank our children for every minor infraction. So, when do you spank and when do you just speak? And that's wisdom. And to get wisdom, you've got to go to God. You'll not find it looking into yourself, you find it looking away from yourself to God. Reach my heart through my mind, O God. And prayers like this, God gives us prayers like this because he knows we need them, and he means to answer them. Reach my heart through my mind. Secondly, we see, guard my life from my heart. Verse 36 and 37, incline, bend my heart to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Our hearts have many enemies on the outside trying to get in, the world and the devil, sinful friends giving us a bad example, sinful enemies attacking us, persecuting us for our faith, all on the outside, a host of deemed demonic darkness, the the, the spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers. The devil is at work to undo us all, right? All the enemies on the outside. But you get the sense here at the center of this little stanza that the psalmist senses his greatest enemy is on the inside. Not the devil on the outside trying to get in, but the evil on the inside that's trying to get out. Like the little boy when when he... He pulled his sister's hair and poked her sister's eye and kicked his sister's shins. And his mother said to him, Don't you dare tell me that the devil made you do it, son. the boy said, Mom, I've got to be honest. Pulling her hair, kicking her shins, the devil may have made me do that. Poking her eye, though, that was my idea. (laughs) Incline my heart to your testimonies, not to selfish gain. The word for selfish gain here is the Hebrew is a lust for personal advantage. It's it's the essence of sin, as Paul describes those on a on a hell-bound trajectory. Um, Day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who are rendered every man according to his deeds, eternal life to those by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, but to those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, and every soul of man is evil. Paul summarizes a hellbound soul under two heads, self-seeking, and they do not obey the truth. Their whole life is a, is a, is a, is a posture of disobedience to God and just seeking after themselves. And the psalmist says, that's just not a problem out there in the world. That's a problem in here in the church and in here in my heart. And, and, and I, don't have, I do not find within myself the strength to overcome myself. I need God to reach in and bend it like a plumber bending a pipe. I need you to bend my heart toward your testimonies because its natural inclination is towards selfish gain. And isn't it wonderful that we have a God who is not only willing to answer that prayer, He's willing to give you that prayer even before you feel the need of it do you despair over your heart's inclination? I'm inclined to go the wrong. I'm like one of those awful buggies at the supermarket with the broken wheel, and you push it, and it keeps on going and over to the right or over to the left, but everywhere you want it to go, which is straight down the middle. My heart's like that. It's, it bent the wrong way. And in the supermarket, you know, the only thing to do is throw the cart away and get a new one. But God doesn't throw you away doesn't despair over you, and you shouldn't despair over yourself. Take this prayer to God, incline my heart to your testimonies, not to selfish gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. The, the verb, it could mean an idol, but it means anything, something that promises you something but gives you nothing. Like a little boy chasing soup bubbles, we spoke about that in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity running after the wind, little bubbles that look so bright and colorful as the sunlight dances in the oil in the film, and you grab it and it pops, and the most you get salt or soap in your eye. You have nothing to hold on to at the end of it all. And the psalmist finds his heart inclined in that direction and his eyes looking in that direction. He has this awful propensity to look at the darkness and to see light. And there's no clearer illustration of that, I think, than our culture's penchant for casual sexual encounters. I was listening this week. It came up on my Instagram feed to um, Jordan Peterson. He was talking about that, you know. Um, he said, let's say you, 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 you were able to have sex with a hundred women or a hundred men in six months or three months, right? He said, and "I'm not decrying that. That's a that's a pretty significant, to, to be that attractive to the opposite sex is a huge thing. And you feel good about it, maybe because it somehow validates your self worth." Then he said, "You see what happens to you, though. What's become of you?" you, you You're using others to gratify your sense of self-worth, and you can't do that without becoming the kind of person who uses others to gratify your self-worth. You treat people like a casual sexual partner, and you become a casual sexual partner for whom sex means nothing. And you really want to think about that before you do that, because you become what you repeatedly choose to do. And that's a metaphor, of course, but it's a picture of us in every way. We're prone to define ourselves by all the wrong things, worthless things, selfish things. And these things pull our heart toward God, away from God, And the answer is fine through prayer, by saying, Lord God, have mercy upon me and pull me in the opposite direction. I don't find within myself the ability to heal myself. You must do it for me. Reach my heart through my mind. Guard my life from my heart, O God. And then thirdly, undergird my heart with Yourself verse 38 to the end, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness give me life. And the root idea here is like a foundation, that which is stable and steadfast, something or someone you can lean on in a pinch who will not let you down when you do right? A foundation. And there are three foundations here, but they all connect back to God. First is the promise of God, verse 38. Confirm, make stable, fulfill, you might say. It's a word using for laying a foundation. But don't let your promise be a will-o'-the-wisp, a soup bubble that when I grab it, it pops, and I'm left with nothing. Rather, confirm to your servant your promise. That's really encouraging. The psalmist is not ashamed to call God your servant, even though he finds himself pulled away to worthless things. Just because you see sin in your life doesn't mean that's all that God sees when he looks at you. When grace changes you, you still might be wayward, even the apostle was. But God is not ashamed to call you his son, and you need not be ashamed to call yourself his servant in Christ. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared, that you may be seen, O God, to be the kind of God who can be depended upon, who can be trusted, whose words mean something, whose words mean everything." Reminded again of J.C. Ryle as a young lad. He worked in his grandfather's bank and he would sign the bank notes. And he said, what a difference that the signature of the banker makes. Before the signature, you've got a worthless piece of linen paper. But once you sign that note as a banker, the promise is everything. I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of 50 pounds sterling. That was back in the day when actually that meant something. But but it did mean something back then. You could take that piece of paper to the bank and exchange it for 50 pounds of sterling silver. And the, the signature of the banker made all the difference. And so it is with the promises of God. This book is signed to you by God Himself. When you find a promise in this book, You have a word you can take to the bank of heaven. Your iniquities and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. Confirm to your servant your promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. Confirm to your servant your promise. When you pass through the waters, they will not overflow you. Confirm to your servant your promise. If I did not spare my own son, but delivered him up for you all, how will I not also with him freely give you all things? Confirm to your servant your promise ask you shall receive seek you will find knock and it shall be open to you for everyone who asks receives he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it shall be open to you confirm to your servant your promise the lord god is a sun and a shield he gives grace and glory no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly confirm to your servant your promise The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, ears open to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against the evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But the righteous cries, and the Lord hears and delivers him out of all his troubles. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared." Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Behind him, ahead of him, above him, beneath him, all around him. A bubble of covenant love. Confirm to your servant your promise. And a thousand similar words that you can take to the bank because of the words of God. Undergird my heart with yourself the promise of God. Secondly, the providence of God. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Now, the word reproach means something that will bring me shame. And there's a thousand things in our lives, it will bring us shame. And I think I quoted this recently, but I'll quote it again. Spurgeon's famous, you know, the one blind eye, the one deaf ear, that as you walk past the Sunday school room and you hear somebody slagging you off or criticizing you, and they don't know you can hear them, and you get a bit hurt by that. Remember, Spurgeon says, one blind eye, one deaf ear. Every pastor, every Christian needs one blind eye and one deaf ear. Why? Well, because, <laughs> just don't listen, because two things. If they heard all the time you spoke evilly against them, they'd be even madder than they are now. And secondly, if they knew all of your sins, all of the reproach-worthy things you ever thought, said, or did, they'd have much more ammunition with which to attack you. And in God's mercy, the vast amount of your sins and mine are hidden safely in private, like the icebergs beneath the ocean. Like the Queen of Sheba, the half of it has not been told to most people. Otherwise, you would not be welcome in here, and you wouldn't want me in the pulpit. And the psalmist is conscious conscience not just of the promise of God beneath him, but the providence of God, the kind providence of God that's at work behind the scenes, deflecting the reproach that you dread. Ever hit return on a a text message just too quickly, and you realize the sarcastic comment you were sending to your wife or somebody else, you actually sent to another member of the church or the congregation? Ever done that before? How many times God has spared us from disaster? There's a providence behind the scenes turning away the reproach that we deserve and that we dread. And yet, God spares us. And then lastly, the promise of God, the providence of God, and the perfections of God. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness give me life. God is perfectly, perpetually, and persistently righteous. Everything about him is straight up and down, according to his standard. And the gospel is in this verse, because if there was no gospel in the Bible, this prayer would read this, "'Behold, I long for your precepts, but the very fact I long for them,' evidence is the fact I've broken them again and again and again, and so I have no option but to pray, in your righteousness, give me death. But the very fact that the righteousness of God that should condemn me and destroy me actually becomes a, a plea, not for destruction, but for deliverance. It's an evidence that somehow someone has found a way to take the righteousness of God and make it a positive thing in the lives of lost and ruined sinners such as you are and I am. And do you remember how John put that so beautifully? If we say that we have no sin, no sin nature, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not actually sinned, broken God's law, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can that be? Well, it's this morning's sermon, isn't it? God's righteousness can only be an argument for your deliverance, because it was an argument for another's destruction. In God's righteousness, God Himself killed Jesus because of your sins. And now, because of Christ's righteousness, God's righteousness— comes a force, arguing not your damnation, but your salvation, not your condemnation, but your justification, not your death, but your life. Oh, and I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. There's grace here, And as Kyle often says, forgiven people become forgiving. Is the argument behind the Sermon on the Mount. Forgiven people become forgiving. When God treats us with grace, how can we treat anybody else with a demand for pure justice. And that's the problem too often in our marriages. You feel him and he feels her. And there's bitterness. How dare you? You failed me. You hurt me. And we go to the law court like Shylock looking for our pound of flesh. When God says, go to the cross, if you want blood, you'll find it there. And if I can forgive your wife for her sins against you because of the cross, if it's enough for me, God says, why is it not enough for you? And if I can forgive your husband for his sins against you at the cross, God says, why can I forgive him for Jesus' sake? and you can't. Are your eyes so blind not to see in the blood of Jesus a blood that speaks better things than the blood of Abel? Justice in the church is a plea for mercy and a plea for grace. Mercy needed and mercy extended. Like Napoleon before the widow who had lost her husband and she was about to lose her son. And she pledged, she said, have mercy upon my son, don't have him, he's about to be executed at dawn for deserting his post. And Napoleon said, I've examined the case, the man is guilty, He he deserves to be executed. And the widow fell at his feet and said, if he didn't deserve to be executed, I'd be asking you for justice. It's because he deserves to be executed that I'm asking you for mercy. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that God's mercy and God's justice aren't at war, but they meet together and kiss over the broken body of his own son upon the cross and become powerful arguments undergirding our soul. Undergird my heart, O God, with Yourself, Your promise, Your providence, and Your perfections. And you have this wonderful prayer, then, to bring to God when you find your heart wandering away from God. Lord, reach my heart through my mind. Guard my life from my heart, and undergird my heart with Yourself. And God gives you this prayer because He means you to use it, because He knows you need it, and He intends to answer it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Pray, Father, O oh God, that You will be gracious to us. Our sins are more in number than the hairs of our head. And we pray, Father, that You would be gracious to us and heal our broken, wandering hearts. For Jesus' sake, make us teachable. Amen.